we've been studying through the book of 2 Kings. We've come as far as chapter 15. Uh, tonight we're going to look at all of chapter 15. And I, I got to confess ahead of time, it, it might be a little bit historical. We're going to cover quite a bit of area of history. We're going to see two kings of Judah, and we're going to cover five kings in the nation Israel. And if you're new with us, and just to make sure that we're all on the same page, as we study through the kings, we're looking at hi- the nation Israel's history and the different kings that ruled and reigned in Israel. Uh, the nation of Israel, as we know them today, at that point in time, was divided into essentially two countries. You had Israel, which has made up the ten tribes to the north, and you had Judah, which made up the ten tribes to the south. So when I refer to Israel, I'm referring to the ten tribes there to the north. What? And the two tribes. What did I say? Ten tribes. Israel's got ten to the north. Judah's got two to the south. Thanks, Sean. I don't know what I do without you. Everybody. See, they, it's good you guys know your Bible. Sometimes you say stuff and you don't even realize you say it. So ten tribes to the north, two tribes to the south. Israel is the, is the group to the north. Judah is the group to the south. They're actually operating as uh, two separate countries. Israel is rapidly facing extinction, and Judah is still serving the Lord, but they're going to be doing so in more of a compromising way. So if you'll pick up in uh, 2 Kings chapter 15, verse 1, uh, we'll start there. In the 27th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Azariah, the son of Amaziah, king of Judah, became king. He was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jecoila of Jerusalem. Now, if you're taking notes, especially if you like to write in your Bible, you might want to make a note that Azariah is the same as as Uzziah, King Uzziah. It's the same name, same person. It'll actually be referred to a little bit later in verse 13 as Uzziah. Uh, I I point that out because as you start reading the scriptures, if you don't make that connection, you'll think you're talking about two different kings there. But King Uzziah in verse 13, it'll be referred to also in 2 Chronicles, it'll be referred to as King Uzziah. Um, You may also want to jot down this, 2 Chronicles chapter 26 in the margin of your Bible. That's where you can find more information on King Uzziah. And Azariah or Uzziah would have taken over when his father, we studied this last week, Amaziah was taken into captivity. He was captured and taken to Samaria by King Joash. And in, this is the same, uh, by the way, this is the same Uzziah that Isaiah would speak about in Isaiah chapter 6. So same Uzziah, same time frame prophecy. Isaiah is being written during this time frame to give you an idea and reference in the scriptures. When Azariah or Uzziah became king, Jerusalem was pretty much in a mess or Judah was pretty much in a mess. A major section of its protective wall had been destroyed. The temple and the palace treasuries had been emptied out. And some of the people had been taken away as captives, their hostages at that point too. And between uh, these verses here, these first couple of verses that we've read, and also, if you will, turn over to 2 Chronicles chapter 26. We're going to be going there shortly. 2 Chronicles, between these two verses, we get to know a lot about King Uzziah there. And I'm just going to kind of highlight it for you. I'm not going to read through 2 Chronicles 26 through the whole thing. I just want to kind of go over some things that we would learn if we were to read through it. Number one, and we find it here, it's kind of interesting. He began his reign when he was how old? 16 years old. That's pretty young, don't you think? His father was taken into captivity there. So he's kind of a young guy taken in. He starts his reign there. And the other thing that's interesting is he didn't really become king by the ordinary means. You know, a lot of times kings become king by, by killing somebody, by killing the previous king, by taking over for someone. But there in, uh, in 2 Chronicles chapter 26, it says, All the people took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king instead of his father Amaziah. So rather than fighting for the throne, it seems like Uzziah was the people's choice. It's who the people wanted to be on the throne and follow in his father's footsteps. 
And he reigned during the ministry of Zechariah, also the prophet. So Isaiah, Zechariah, those are all prophets that would have been prophesying during his reign here. During the early years of his reign, we read in 2 Chronicles, Zechariah was a moral influence and a counselor to the king Uzziah. 2 Chronicles 26.5 tells us, Uzziah sought God in the days of Zechariah, who had understanding in the visions of God. As long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. That would be true for us too. As long as you're seeking the Lord, God's going to prosper you. It might not be in a, in, a, in a financial sense, but in a spiritual sense, as long as you're seeking the Lord, you're going to be prosperous. It might not even be in, a, in an easy sense. It might be difficult circumstances outwardly, but as long as you're truly seeking the Lord, you can trust that you will be prospering in a spiritual, perspe- in a spiritual sense. Also, King Uzziah defeated the Philistines. He took many of their cities, and he also kept the Ammonites in tribute. He had great success in battle. He served for 52 years as king, so he was, he was a good king. He was, he was having a lot of military success. Uh, one of the things that he did, he was, he was at the forefront of developing cutting-edge weapons of that day. He was able to develop some sort of mechanism that would shoot multiple arrows at a time and was able to catapult stones off of the wall. So that was quite a, as, as, the, as they would come to attack, he had developed a, a, a weapon that would shoot stones off the walls and he could shoot multiple arrows that way, which really kind of helped them uh, defend their, their position. But he also developed a way for his men to climb up the walls. And as he began to do this, he had great success militarily. And because of this, he became well-known as a very strong and a very powerful king, leading the king of Judah. He was a great builder. He was also a skilled architecture, or not architecture, agri- skilled in agriculture. He put a lot of emphasis on growing things, farming, preparing for the food. Many Bible scholars say that he did that because of the prophecies of Hosea and Amos that talked about the coming droughts and things like that. So he was looking to the Lord, looking for the prophets for, for wisdom on how to lead the nation of Judah, and, and he was having success at it. His, his, his reign was largely characterized by good. He was considered a good king. But there were some downfalls. There were some problems. And we'll see that in verse 3. It says, He did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah had done, except that the high places, and there's always an except, isn't there? Except that the high places were not removed. The people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. Like many other of the kings of Judah who came before him, he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, but. There's a but. There's always sometimes that but that follows. Well, almost, except, but. And then comes the downfall. And then comes the mistake. He did not remove the high places where the people sacrificed and burned incense. So the people of Judah were sacrificing and burning incense. Some people would say they were burning incense to, the, to, to, to Jehovah God, and just in the wrong spot. They were supposed to be worshiping Jehovah God in the temple. Other people would say they were burning incense to false gods. Uh, either way, they're not worshiping God the way that God had prescribed for him to be worshipped. They weren't doing it God's way. They'd done it, they were doing things their way. So Uzziah was a man who followed God, but he allowed for compromises in the people's spiritual life. He allowed these compromises to come in. They kept doing what they'd always done because it had become their culture or their tradition. It's the way we've always done things. And, and rather than putting his foot down and saying, no, this is unbiblical. I'm not going to let you live your lives that way. He just let it go on. He just let it continue. God doesn't care about our culture or our tradition. You're not going to be, there's no excuse before God someday. Be, well, that was the way that my, I was taught. That was the way the culture was. That was my tradition. God's not interested in our culture or our tradition. He cares about your obedience to his ways. 
You see, God had prescribed the way that he wants to be worshipped, and they had a choice, either follow it or not follow it. And they were getting away from the very way that God had prescribed. And while he is patient, he will not let you go on forever before correction comes. Oftentimes our culture or our tradition can influence the way that we worship. And and it might be okay if it's right, but don't just take the fact that it's culture or tradition, therefore it must be right. That's what was going on here. Notice the next verse. Then the Lord struck the king so that he was a leper until the day of his death. So he dwelt in an isolated house, and Jotham, the king's son, was over the royal house, judging the people and the land. When you first read that, you think, poor king, poor Uzziah, why did he get struck with leprosy? After all, he just did everything else all the other kings did. He, he just forgot to knock down the high places, but that's not what he's talking about there. And before we jump to any conclusions, I think we need some more information to understand what's going on there. And like I had you turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 26, that's where we're going to see, uh, the, as Paul Harvey would say, the rest of the story. Mm-hmm. We'll see that in 2 Chronicles chapter 26. So I'm going to pick up in verse 16, if you'll follow along with me. But when he was strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruction. For he transgressed against the Lord his God by entering the temple of the Lord, to burn incense on the altar of incense. So Azariah the priest went in after him, and with him were eighty priests of the Lord, valiant men. And they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Get out of the sanctuary, for you have trespassed. You shall have no honor from the Lord God. And Uzziah became furious, and he had a censer in his hand to burn incense. And while he was angry with the priests, leprosy broke out on his forehead before the priests in the house of the Lord, beside the incense altar. And Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him, and there on his forehead he was leprous. So they thrust him out of the place. Indeed, he also hurried to get out because of the Lord had struck him. King Uzziah was a leper until the day of his death. He dwelt in an isolated house because he was a leper, for he was cut off from the house of the Lord. Do you understand what took place there? King Uzziah was doing good. He was victorious economically, militarily. He was having success. And then he goes into the holy place. The holy place was right outside of the holy of holies in the tabernacle. It was the place that only the priest was supposed to go. He was supposed to go to the altar of incense and burn, 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 burn incense there on the altar. You had to be from the line of Levi to go in there, from the tribe of Levi to go in there. Not anybody could do that. Not anybody could just go to this part of the temple. It wasn't open for everybody. Only certain priests on their certain days when they were supposed to go in were supposed to be there. It wasn't like they could just come to and fro whenever they wanted. Even they were limited in their access this portion god dwelt just beyond the holy place in what was called the holy of holies so it was it was as close as you could get to physically being to god and it wasn't supposed to be anybody that could walk in there uzziah became proud his pride got the best of him he was no longer content to be king it's that old carrot i want something i can't have how come i can't go in there and sacrifice to god this was reserved for the priests of levi it wasn't just for anybody he didn't like the fact that they could go in and that he couldn't He wanted to go in and sacrifice. Why can't I go in and put incense on the altar? I should be able to do that. If they can do it, I can do it. They're a man. I'm a man. No, there's a difference there. 
God appointed the priest to do that. That was their work. That's why God struck him with leprosy. Why? Because it violated God's way of doing things. It violated the way God's system, the way he had set up. It violated his law on how things were supposed to run. The Lord had set up priests, he had set up prophets, and he had set up kings, each with their own individual responsibility. And they weren't supposed to be cross-trained. The king wasn't supposed to go to do the priest's job. The priest wasn't supposed to do the king's job. And the prophet wasn't supposed to get involved in it either. They were all supposed to minister in different ways. And what you would find is a perfect ministry that was supposed to take place. They weren't supposed, that office wasn't supposed to be held by one single person until the Messiah came. Until the time of Christ. Jesus would be the prophet, the priest, and the king held in one person. The Messiah would be that person. Until that time of the Messiah, it was supposed to be three different offices, and Uzziah did not respect that. And there he found himself struck with leprosy. Jesus is our high priest. He is our prophet. He is our king today. He is the one that fulfills all three of those offices. You see all three of them mentioned in Hebrews chapter 1 in the first four verses there. Uzziah considered himself above God's law. I can do what I want. I'm king. Totally neglecting the fact that, no, you can't. There's a greater king than you are. There's somebody greater than you are. You might be king of your city, of your town, of your house, of your your empire, whatever you're king of, but there's somebody greater. There's the Lord out there. And when you come against him and you're not going to do things his way, correction will soon follow. Have you found that in life? I have. I have found when I try to do the things against what the Lord would have me do that I find myself corrected. I find him, there's things that come along in my life that bring about, I, I, he brings it very clearly to my mind or to my, he, he shows me that I'm, where I'm falling short. And I'm sure that he does the same thing with you. Because of his pride, Uzziah lived the rest of his life. Think about this. He was quarantined for the rest of his life. And in doing so, he lost his office as king. He was neither king nor priest. Because he wanted what wasn't set for him, he became nothing. Wow, there's a lesson there too. As a church, we're the body of Christ. Everybody's been given certain tasks, certain jobs, certain things that we need to fulfill. We find ourselves wanting what something, somebody else has. You might just find yourself on the outside altogether. It's important to let God's people do what God's called them to do and not get in the way of that. One might get more recognition than you, but that's okay. Your your recognition needs to come from the Lord, not from people. We want the Lord to be the one that, when we lay our head on the pillow at night, that says, I serve the Lord today. I was obedient to him. I did what he called me to do. Not, not everybody recognized me. Everybody said thank you to me today. Everybody really likes me. Therefore, I'm I'm good. It's not about that at all. It's about being obedient to the Lord. Look at verse 6. Now the rest of the acts of Azariah and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Azariah rested with his fathers. They buried him with his fathers in the city of David. Then Jotham, his son, reigned in his place. We'll get back to that in a second. Now we're going to leave the southern kingdom of Judah and we're going to go back up north to the kingdom of Israel. Verses 18 through 31, as we study those this evening, are going to show us the chaos that's occurring in the nation of Israel. So while Uzziah is on the throne in Judah, coming, what we're going to kind of, if you just kind of think of it, we're shifting regions or shifting areas. We're going down from Judah up to Israel. We're going to start to see the next uh, five kings in Israel come into play. Look at verse 8. In the 38th year of Azariah, king of Judah, Zechariah, the son of Jeroboam, reigned over Israel in Samaria six months. 
Six months. He only lasted six months. Well, what happened to him? Look at verse 9. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, as his fathers had done. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin. Then Shalom, the son of Jabesh, conspired against him and struck and killed him in front of the people, and he reigned in his place. Why was his reign so short? Well, he was assassinated right in front of the people. But what did it say about him? This is his legacy. He did evil in the sight of of the Lord. It wasn't about God's ways. Remember the nation, their, their name, Israel, means what? It means governed by God. They are so far from what their name means at this point, it's not even funny. They're not being governed by God. They're being governed by the ways of their fathers. They're being governed by the sins of Jeroboam. They're doing what they want to do. He only lasted six months. He's killed with a public assassination, and the next guy takes over. That's all we read about him. Now the rest of the, verse 11, now the rest of the acts of Zechariah indeed they are written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. This was the word of the Lord which he spoke to Jehu, saying, your sons, shall sat, your sons shall sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. And so it was. Back in 2 Kings chapter 10, verse 30, God made a promise to Jehu. Remember Jehu? Jehu had faithfully judged the house of Ahab. He had killed all the house of Ahab like God had wanted him to do because they were wicked. And they were coming against God's people. So God promised Jehu, he said, your next four generations, your sons, for four generations are going to sit. You and then the three after you are going to sit on the, on the throne. Uh, I'm going to promise you that. And here we find out it happened just as God has promised. And I point that out because it's, it's important for us to remember that God's promises are going to come true. Mm-hmm. That's why it's in here so we can look back. Because so often you hold on to one of God's promises. You hold on to a verse out of the Bible or something. And you go, does that really apply to me? Yes. Will it really come true? Yes, it will. We see promise after promise from the Lord being fulfilled. For four generations, we saw it happen. Zechariah was the fourth and final king in Jehu's dynasty. We saw it take place just like God said it would. God's promise, once again, is fulfilled. And as we've studied through so much of the Old Testament to this point, that's what we keep seeing is God's promise one after another, after another, after another. That should be building your faith. You should be realizing God's promises are true. They're going to come to pass. We just don't necessarily know when they'll come to pass. Look at verse 13. The next king of Israel. Shalom the son of Jabesh became king in the 39th year of Uzziah king of Judah. He reigned a full month in Samaria. For Menahem the son of Gadi went up from Terza and came to Samaria and struck Shalom the son of Jabesh in Samaria and killed him and he reigned in his place. A full month, a whole 30 days is what he lasted. Obviously, the throne was in great dispute, and there wasn't a lot of support for Shalom. It wasn't, he wasn't highly supported. There's a, you can kind of, when you see the short reigns of the kings, what does that tell you about the culture? It's an upheaval. There, there's, this one's taken over. No, that, no, I'm reigning. No, I'm ruling. No, I'm ruling. Six months, one month. It, the whole culture is in upheaval. upheaval. Josephus tells us that Shalom was supposedly Zechariah's friend. Menchum. Menashem was his general. When Menashem heard of Shalom's treachery, he came to Samaria to take vengeance. Menashem killed Shalom and took the throne for himself. He took it over for himself. Israel is in trouble. Israel in trouble. You know what their biggest problem is? Besides, I mean, obviously they're not following the Lord, but there's an authority struggle in their lives. Who's in charge? Who's controlling us? Who's running the show? Who, who's, who's the leader here in this place? There's, no, there's not an established authority in the kingdom. It's in upheaval at this point. There's jockeying for position. I'm going to be king. No, I'm going to be king. No, I want to be king. Think about this for a second. Israel 
is declining. And if you know the story, they're going to continue their decline. But yet there's a lack of authority in their life. There's a lack of somebody running the show. What about your life? Do you have an established authority in your life? Have you set up the Lord and his word as an authority in your life? Or are there other things that are jockeying for position for authority in your life? Perhaps it's wealth. Could be finances. Perhaps it's a relationship. Perhaps it's a career. Perhaps it's authority or power or, or, or children or you know, finding a maid or, what, or whatever it is. There's other things. We face the same type of things. We're looking at it from a national perspective, but in our own very lives, there's the same perspective. What is it that has the authority in your life? What is it that has the final word in your life? Who is it or what is it that you turn to and go, I need to make a decision. I need a plumb line to go. What's right and what's wrong? You see, as a Christian, it should be the word of God. It should be God and his word. It should be, God's word should be the final authority in my life. If you haven't noticed, the culture is changing around us. Have you seen that? The culture is changing. But God's word doesn't change. If I establish this as the authority in my life, it'll be the same thing when I, whether I'm 16 or whether I'm 86. God's word's not going to change. But I can tell you that if you talk to somebody who's 86 years old, the culture has changed a lot from the time they were 16, hasn't it? You see, we don't have to look very far back to see that the culture is changing. Are we going to just allow the culture to dictate what the authority is? Are we going to rely on the Supreme Court to be the authority in our life and whatever they say, that's what we believe? I believe as Christians it needs to be God's word. That needs to be the authority in our life. Whether we're 16 or whether we're 86, wherever we're at, God's word will not change. You see, Jesus and his word need to be the very thing that leads you. Have you ever made the conscious decision to establish that in your life? You see, I think sometimes we're guilty as we, we you say, well, of course God's word's the authority in my life. I go to church. Yeah, but have you ever sat down and said, no, I am going to live my life by the word of God. Do you know what happens when you do that? You've got to learn the word of God. You've got to read the word of God. You've got to, you're going to go, all right, I've got a problem. I've got to go find it in the word of God. You know, we have watched these kings as we've traveled here go through problem after problem after problem. And, it, and the funny thing is it's all kind of rooted in the same thing. You know, we're watching it. It's, it's pride. It's arrogance. It's, you know, it's, you know, not following the ways of the Lord. You know, it, it's all kind of the same problems that are producing different, uh, they're, they're manifesting in different symptoms, but the roots all seem to be the same thing. Have you ever actually sat down and made a commitment between you and the Lord? Says, I'm going to follow you, Lord. I'm going to follow your word. From now on, what your word says, that's what I'm going to live. See, Israel has no authority. And what authority they do have, it's not a good authority. It's evil. It's not following in the ways of the Lord. As Christians, we need to establish the Lord and his word as the authority in our life. If you've never done that, I would encourage you to do it. Don't just think about it. Say it out loud. Speak it to your husband, to your wife, to your friend. Write it down. As, jo as Joshua said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Let it be something that's not just in your mind that you assume you're doing. Challenge yourself on it. Is my decision based on God's word or is it based on my culture or what I, what I want to do? Because let's face it, we all want to do things that are in conflict with God's word. But for whatever reason, and we can find good justification and rationalization, we can make it up in our mind. But it changes. If we're not careful, the authority will change. But God's word will never change. Look at verse 15. Now the rest of the acts of Shalom and the conspiracy which he led, indeed they are written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Israel. Then from uh, Terza, Menahem attacked Tifsha, all who were there in, it, in its territories because they did not surrender. Therefore he attacked it. All the women there 
who were with child, he ripped open. Pregnant women. Do you remember back in 2 Kings chapter 8 when Haziel approached Elisha about the illness of Ben-Hadad, who was the king of Syria? He wanted to find out if he was going to make it okay. And Elisha began weeping, and he said, why are you weeping? He said, because I see the, I see the, the evil that you're going to do to the nation Israel. I see how you're going to treat us. And I see that you're going to, you're going to tear our children from their mother's wombs. That's what he said would take place. Now, let me give you an idea. This is not them, the Syrians, doing it to the Israelites. This is the Israelites doing it to somebody else. It's how, it's how low they've stepped, how, how low they've come, how, how far from God their ungodliness has brought them. Other nations were doing it to them. Now they've picked it up and they're doing it to somebody else. How sad is that? The nation that's supposed to be representing God to the rest of the world. And that's how they're doing it. That's the mistake that they're making. They've slipped farther and farther and farther away from the Lord and their own destruction is going to be forthcoming rather soon. Look at verse 17. In the 39th year of Azariah, king of Judah, Menahem, the son of Gadi, became king over Israel. He reigned ten years in Samaria and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart all the days from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, who made Israel sin. It's the typical king of Israel. Evil and the continuation of the state-sponsored idolatry of Jeroboam. Everybody just follow what Jeroboam did. Follow, just keep doing evil. Look at verse 19. Pol, king of Assyria, came against the land. Menahem gave Pol a thousand talents of silver that his hand might be with him to strengthen the kingdom under his control. Here we have the first mention in scripture of the Assyrians. Pol, the king of Assyria. They're being led by a man here by the name of Pol. He's been a, Syria has been a powerful world leader now for 150 years. But they're not mentioned in the scriptures until right now. Historically, they've been, they've been conquering and coming on the scene. But they've left Israel in, alone. Why? Well, I believe God was protecting Israel. I believe God was waiting for Israel to turn back to him before he was going to let something like this happen. Some scholars even believe that because this was the time that Jonah was prophesying, or Jonah had prophesied previously, that, it, that, that the leaders of Assyria, because of Jonah going to Nineveh and the Nineveh repenting, they didn't want to mess with Israel. It was respect for them. They were, going to, we we're just going to leave them alone. But now this guy, Paul, comes on the scene and he's not concerned about that. He comes to Israel and says, basically threatens to do war. And what does it say they do? He got the money. We're going to pay him off. Look at verse 20. Menahem exacted the money from Israel, from all the very wealthy, from each man 50 shekels of silver to give the king of Assyria. So the king of Assyria turned back, did not stay in the land. He taxed the wealthy people for the money. They got money, we'll just take their money. You know what the problem is with this? This is like the, this is like the schoolyard bully who comes and takes your lunch money. You know what's going to happen next week when he needs more money? He's going to come back. That's the problem with not standing up. He's, he's, they're just going to give him what he wants, so he just goes to the rich people and imposes a tax on them, takes money from them, and they hands it off to the king of Assyria. It's not going to work out for them in the long run, I assure you. Look at verse 21. Now the rest of the acts of Menahem and all that he did, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Menahem rested with his fathers. Then Pekahiah, his son, reigned in his place. Pekahiah is going to become the next king of Israel. Verse 23. In the 50th year of Azariah, king of Judah, Pekahiah, the son of Menahem, became king over Israel and Samaria and reigned two years. Look at verse 24. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, 
who had made Israel sin. Then Pekah, the son of Rimelah, the officer of his, conspired against him, killed him in Samaria in citadel of the king's house, along with Argob and Aria, and, and with him were 50 men of Gilead. He killed him and reigned in his place. Now the rest of the acts of Pekahiah and all he did indeed, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Israel? How many times do we have to read about the sins of Jeroboam? How many times do we have to see it over and over and over again? And we want to look at Israel and go, how can you guys be so stupid? How could you be so dumb? But do you remember what the sins of Jeroboam were? Do you remember what they actually did? They built two golden calves. As the nation of Israel split, Judah stayed to the south, Israel went to the north. Jeroboam decides, I don't want the people of the ten northern tribes going down to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. That's inconvenient. And besides, what if they go down there? They might like that place better and stay there. So we're going to build two golden calves is what they did. One in Dan and one one in Bethel. They didn't build them as replacements for God. They built them as representations of God. So they weren't saying, don't worship Jehovah God of Judah anymore down in Jerusalem. They were saying, just worship these these calves. That's, That's who God is. That's who God is. They weren't replacing it. They were just, they were giving them representations. Jeroboam worshiped God, but not in the way that God desired to be worshiped. You see, he hadn't gone as far as idolatry yet or idol worship. He set up these calves so the people, they don't have to go all the way to Jerusalem to worship. It's much more convenient to worship up here. Jeroboam essentially invented his own religion and he called it God. And he called it Yahweh or Jehovah. He made up his own religion. One that was convenient. But it wasn't faithful. It wasn't obedient. It was convenient. He made up his own religion. He took what he wanted from them. He applied it up here and said, this is the same thing, just in a different location. You see the problem with that? That's not the way God designed it to happen. It wasn't supposed to work that way. It wasn't supposed to be a religion of convenience. It was supposed to be a religion of obedience. A religion of faithfulness, where God is faithful to you and you're faithful to him. Israel was supposed to represent God to the rest of the world. They were to look at the rest of the world. All the other nations should look at Israel and go, wow, their God is amazing. They, They were supposed to represent them, but that's not what they did. Instead, they were disobedient to God and they became like all the other nations of the world. We want a king. Everybody else has a king. Can we have a king too? Fine, give them a king. And one step after another, he just kept getting further and further and further away. He invented his own religion. Jeroboam did. And as a matter of fact, all 19 kings who followed, followed in the sins of Jeroboam. In the end, this corrupt worship that Jeroboam invented was the primary sin for which God would judge Israel. They had left their God who had brought them out of Egypt. There's a lesson for us in this. Our worship of the Lord must obey God. It must be the way that he wants to be worshipped, not just a worship that appeases us. Our worship for the Lord, we must come before the Lord the way he prescribes and not the way that makes us feel good. You see, when we come before the Lord and we study his word and we want to sing songs to him, it has to be in a way that he wants us to. And it doesn't mean we can't have different variations like we do in different churches. But it has to be about him. Our worship should be in spirit and truth. Our worship should be done decently and in order. Our worship should be about God and not about us. You see, in our culture, what happens oftentimes during worship is the worship is about you. 
The worship is about how you feel, about how, how, how do I feel during worship? How does a song make me feel? It, it, you know, I want to sing about me. I want to sing about how much I love God. I want to sing about how much I'm doing for God, how much I praise God. That's the wrong heart. That's not worshiping God the way that he wants to be worshipped. How does he want to be worshipped? As God. He's a jealous God. He wants to be a name above all names. He's the Alpha, the Omega, and the beginning and the end. Worship songs that talk about how I'm feeling about God when I'm pouring out my heart to God. That's a prayer. It's good, but it's not worship of God. Don't, don't mistake the two. Worship of God is me declaring who he is, me celebrating what he's done. It's all about him and not about me. Every song has a topic or a person that you're singing about. If there's way too many I's in there, I will, I am, I do, and you're talking about you, it might be a wonderful prayer and it might touch your heart, but it's not worshiping him. We need to be very, very careful that we don't call those things worship. I think we can make a mistake there. You see, he is the one that we are worshiping. The Lord Jesus Christ, God the Father, the Holy Spirit, that is where our worship is set to, not to me or my emotions or you or how you're feeling. And that your worship shouldn't be contingent upon how you feel either. You ever said that? I don't feel like worshiping today. It's hot in here. I don't want to worship. It's, it, uh, I just had, I'm in a bad mood. I don't want to worship. I don't care how you feel. You should still worship for who he is and what he's done. He hasn't changed one bit, even if you don't feel like it. But I know we all get there sometimes. We're not in the mood, right? Think about it this way. He's the one that died for you. He's the one that's leading you. He's the one that does everything for you. He's the one that can change your very circumstance. Oftentimes, worship is what does that. You see, when you worship, you put things back into perspective. When I can, I, I can be miserable, I can be stressed out, I can be worried about something, and you know what will bring my perspective back? Worship. Remembering who God is. Remembering that my little problem here on earth is not bigger than he is. My stress, my, my problems, my worry, my, whatever it is that's got me worked up, God's got it. Whatever is above my head is still below his feet. You know, I need to remember that, and worship brings us back to that position. If all I sing about is how I feel, that doesn't put me in the right mindset. But if I sing about who he is, and I'm reminded his power, his might, his strength, his sacrifice, and I think of the cross, oh, it puts everything in the right place. Worship is the key. Now on to the next king, verse 27. In the 52nd year of Azariah, king of Judah, Pekah the son of Ramallah became king over Israel and Samaria. He reigned 20 years. And here it is again. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, who had made Israel sin. In the days of Pekah, king of Israel, uh, Tiglath Pileser, that's also Pol. You recognize him as Pol earlier. I like Pol better, it's easier to say. <laughs> king of Assyria came and took, uh, go for that one on your own, whatever you think. Abel, Beth, Maka, and then the rest of the people there, all the land of Naphtali, and he carried them captive to Assyria. The Israelites are being taken into captivity. Then Hoshea, the son of Elah, led a conspiracy against Pekah, king of Israel, the son of Remelah, and struck and killed him, so he reigned in his place in the 20th year of Jotham, the son of Uzziah. Now the rest of the acts of Pekah and all that he did, indeed, they are written in the book of Chronicles of the Kings. What's taking place here in the nation of Israel is the Assyrians are now beginning to attack the border towns. They're going on the ones that are on the outskirts. They're carrying people off as their prisoners. And this truly is becoming the end, the beginning of the end for the ten northern tribes. There's not much time left for them. 
First Chron- this is interesting. From First Chronicles chapter 5, verse 26, we learn that Paul here, the king of Assyria, he carried away into captivity two tribes. Reuben, Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh, or two and a half tribes, I guess you could say. Reuben, Gad, half the tribe of Manasseh, and all that belonged to Israel on their side of the Jordan. And these tribes would never be restored to them. But I want to show something with you. If you remember correctly, way back when the Israelites came into the promised land, as they, as they approached the promised land, as they were getting ready to cross over the Jordan, there was two and a half tribes that came to Joshua. And what did they say? They said, we don't want to go into the promised land. We like it better on this side of the Jordan River. You know those tribes, who, the, who they were? Reuben, Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh. They said, we don't want the promised land. We'd rather stay on this side of the Jordan River. We're happy and we're content here, as if they're saying to God, I don't want your promised land. I'm going to stay right where I'm at. I don't need your promised land. And remember what Joshua said? They had worked out a deal with Moses previously. He said, I'll tell you what, if you, that's fine. If you want to stay there, you come over and you help us fight and take the promised land. And they did. Then they went back to the other side of the Jordan River. And now here, the first two and a half tribes that are taken into captivity. And I want you to know they'll never be restored again. They're never coming back. This is it. That land is gone. Those two and a half tribes are not going to be restored. They're the first ones to be taken into captivity. The kingdom of Israel is beginning to shrink. It's getting smaller and smaller and smaller as we're going to approach the final days. And now as we look at verse 32, our our focus is going to shift back to Judah. I know it's confusing. We go from Israel to Judah and Israel to Judah. So we've been up north in Israel. They're having a lot of trouble. The Assyrians are attacking them. They're taking their border town. Now down and we're going to go back down to Judah where they're still serving the Lord. Let's look down at verse 32. In the second year of Pekah, the son of Remelah, the king of Israel, Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, began to reign. Twenty-five years old when he became king, he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jerusha, the daughter of Zadok. Verse 34, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. He did according to all that his father Uzziah had done. However, the high places were not removed. The people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. And he built the upper gate of the house of the Lord. Do you notice the contrast between Judah and Israel? Israel are doing evil in the sight of the Lord. Judah is doing what's right in the sight of the Lord. Israel's kings and Israel's life is falling apart and Judah is still doing okay. And it's interesting to me, they keep, the sons keep reigning like their fathers. It keeps going. It seems like the sons reign, they just reign just like their fathers before them. There's not a whole lot of change. While it's not concrete, certainly it shows us the principle or the impact that a father's life has on a son's life because they're doing things the same way. Now, verse 36, now the rest of the acts of uh, 